0: 500 The 500 J.M. been walking us down through That 2012 edition So it ain't nothing to you Hundreds more to go And in need of a friend The King of these for Angelo Talking the 500 until the end Talking the 500 until the end my man Jim On the 500 Talking the 500 until the end A picture of you In your birthday suit Sat in the sun On a
1: The song is Picture Book Pitcher Picture Book by the Kinks from their 1968 record The Kings are the Village Green Preservation Society It's also number two's 58 out of 500 on the 500 with Josh Adam-Miles What's up, y'all? Uh, thank you for tuning in to the only podcast where comedians going through Rolling Stone Magazine's list of the 500 greatest albums, and uh, if you're looking for facts, if you're looking for great discussions by people that know shit this isn't it Just two guys having fun. All right? Done. Every Wednesday, we publish full episodes to Patreon. So subscribe and support the show. Patreon.com backslash the 500 podcast. You support the show. We keep going. It's a beautiful thing. Send us your money. We need it. You get it? We need it. Get it in your brains. If you're listening and you do it every week, Send us your money. Okay. All right. Uh, What do I have going on this weekend? I will be in the Jacksonville Comedy Zone doing five shows Thursday through Saturday. Then I'll be in Pittsburgh July 14th doing the Mario Lemieux Foundation. Then you can find me in Toronto at the Comedy Bar on July 20th. I think that's the 20th and the 21st. I will be. at, in Canada, at the Levity Live, yeah. Oh, and then July 16th, I'm doing the nine year anniversary of the goddamn Comedy Jam at the Comedy Store. Come out, it's gonna be special. And you can get tickets to all that shit at joshadammyers.com. And then, July 28th through October 15th, the Jelly Roll Tour, the Back Row Baptism Tour. I am hosting with my band. It's gonna be a trip, 44 arenas around the country, come out. Come out and see me. We're gonna be doing a lot of fun shit, so we want you there. All right, The Kinks. This is our third Kinks record, I'm pretty sure. It's second or third. And man, oh, do we have a doozy of a guest for a doozy of a record. This dude is uh, somebody that is one of my favorite character actors, one of my favorite people that we've had on the show the one and only Kevin Pollack. You've seen him in A Few Good Men. You've seen him in The Marvelous Miss Maisel. You've seen him on Usual Suspects. He's got a new podcast where he's re-watching Miss Mazel. It's called My Miss Mazel Pod. It launched earlier this month where he goes one-on-one with his co-stars and behind-the-camera stars who share memories and insights from an episode of the multi-award-winning worldwide phenomenon, The Miss Mazel. The Marvelous Miss Maisel, and you can catch the final season of The Marvelous Miss Maisel now on Amazon Prime. Sometimes we get legends, and we got one. Rate review, and most importantly, subscribe to the 500, listen free on all platforms, leave a five star review. Follow me at Josh Adam Myers on all social media. Go to joshadammyers.com for tickets. Email the podcast at 500podcast at gmail.com. Follow the Facebook group run by Crazy Evan. And for all things 500, go to the website, the500podcast.com. It might take you to the 500 page. It might take you to a page with nine other podcasts. But either way, search, find it, click. All right, here we go. The Kinks of the Village Green Preservation Society by the Kinks at 258 yeah, you're one of my favorite character actors. So do I, do I, do I look good?
2: <laughs> uh, you, uh, what are you trying to accomplish?
1: This is my question. I, you know, just, I just want to make sure I don't look like, like crap. That's it. I want I want people to see me in a good light.
2: Oh, okay. So A too late b <laughs> um yeah no i love giving people shit on zoom when they they don't have any light on their face so when you nail it as you have i i tend to say nothing dude
1: and this is this is why i was so excited to sit down and and talk to you today mm-hmm. uh we i've been doing this podcast now good god jeremiah how many years five almost five Almost, almost five there. years. I've almost quit mm, thirty times. Thirty-five, probably times. thirty-five times. And the reason it, what keeps me going is the the idea that. I get to talk about these great records with people that i look up to people that you know i'm in awe of and unfortunately i don't have one today i have you none of those Ah, you know we didn't have any of that um no it's this is what i love doing about this is that is that like i'm a new kings fan i don't even know if i really call myself a big fan yet but this is our, our second record that we've done and and I think we're finally venturing into the music that is really what makes this band uh, held to the levels of the other bands in the British Invasion. And then on top of that, the guest today, who you've been in some of my favorite movies, um, you know, A Few Good Men. Dude, I literally, when I was in Wilmington, just listened to your interview with Rich Eisen where yeah. you're talking all that Jack stuff. And I mean, I, I, that was one of the most entertaining... Yeah. A few minutes. I mean, it was just so great. So it so was thank weird you.
2: how much coverage that pieces of that interview got. There were a couple of stories in there that just showed up apparently on everyone's Google News feeds. And yeah. I started getting texts and tweets from. People I hadn't heard of in quite a from in quite a while, and uh, yeah, it was like more attention than the last thirty projects I was involved in. It's just the power of the internet, man.
1: One thing gets gets brought up into your, you yeah. might enjoy this yeah. feed, and and next thing you know, you're getting noticed on the subway. You know, when you're just trying to go to yeah. Morton Williams. Um, right. No, but, but dude, it was it was
2: so great. Did Jack reach out? <laughs> no, we haven't, uh, we haven't spoken in, in uh, decades. Uh, I guess I ran into him maybe a dozen years ago and he was um, so cool and, and his usual goofy self. It was one of the things that I found um, myth shattering, but instantly embraceable was that instead of being aloof, which I thought someone that cool would have to be, he was mm-hmm. wildly gregarious and a complete goofball. I'd never seen anyone so comfortable in their own shoes. And uh turns out no one does Jack like Jack.
1: Yeah. Oh my God. It's just even the older he gets and you see him like on the side of the Lakers game, and it's just yeah. the most famous people right now are walking by and people are still looking at Jack, you know, yeah. hair yeah. disheveled, just just like he just woke up and he does like he can do whatever the fuck he wants and good for him, he deserves it. Yeah. Um yeah. dude, this well, this was great because uh you know i we've talked about having you on and it just worked out for the kinks so why the kinks why like i don't i guess that's my first question is not why are you here but how and how the
2: kinks well um how i'm here is uh someone thought it was a good idea so you're going to take credit for that totally cool um <laughs> and then you know i got an email from i don't know someone in your world who who Emily. gave me there we go. That's it's the Emily, one. It's Emily. Emily.
1: Emily, She's the heart and soul of this podcast. I was going to say that. I'm glad you did.
2: Um,
0: <laughs> <laughs> and she, I was pushing.
2: Uh, yeah. She gave me only uh, three, maybe four choices. And the kinks have a very fond uh, spot in my heart because I'm older. So I'm of generation. This album came out, I guess, listed anyways in 68. Mm-hmm. And um, so I was just starting to hang out with my older cousins who were playing the British invasion stuff. And, you know, I first actually tapped into the Dave Clark five because they sort of, there was a moment in time in 64, 65, where they were uh, in step with the Beatles in terms of U S popularity and fame. Sure. And, um, and then that led to, as you say, more of the British invasion for my own young, preteen experience and that was the kinks yeah and um i always loved those early albums of of these bands even by the way even in so-called modern rock i mean i'm a big fan of kings of leon but it's really about their first handful of albums yeah totally Uh, yeah their their first three or four albums there's phenomenal that absolutely rival led zeppelin in my view
1: i couldn't agree with you more and yeah. and it's and i hate to be the guy that's like oh man i only you know i like the earlier stuff but once they went pop but certain bands have taken turns where the bigger they get like coldplay i, I love the first four coldplay records i think they like you said you put them up there with with the kings with led zeppelin i would put coldplay's first four records up there with you know the 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 beatles or any they were just making great lovable music that and then they just became too poppy and it just like when King started sounding like you two come was it come around sunshine i think that was the record that it really turned into like a bigger thing um, that was when I kind of started drifting off. Still a great band, but I know exactly Still what you mean. Still
2: phenomenal band and, and always will be they're phenomenal also in concert. I love them. But it's just something about the early days of most bands, the early days of Elton John, his first three albums. You know, it's, it's something, and, and the Beatles. I mean, all of them, when they're finding their way, when they're finding their voice, you know, I came up in stand-up comedy, and the same thing is true when a comedian finds their real voice. Um, that could take decades but when they do that's when the magic uh, happens so for music for me again I had these older cousins the Zookers, where when I was 10 11 12 they were 16 17 18 so they were and we were northern California and 68 we're talking just after the summer of love so Jesus you know the 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 British invasion was was heading off the the hippie movement in yeah. San Francisco where I was uh, coming up. Uh, the, just to ask you: Are there a lot of were there a lot of Jews in NorCal? Um, I, it depends on you know parts of it were very Jewy, sure. sure. Uh, certainly in the city, any any big city like that is going to get uh, a goodly amount, yeah.
1: I always figured yeah. it was like New York and Pikesville, Maryland. After that, <laughs> you got like three or four in Everyone. certain area. Yeah. yeah, there's there's an
2: insane amount of in the Midwest. I mean, uh, uh, Kansas City, uh, Wisconsin. I've I've because of the Mrs. Maisel program, I've certainly come across packs of them running wild still to this day. Uh, packs and, and yeah, I don't know that there's much crossover with with your audience in the Maisel. Um, I don't pretend to know uh, your demographics. Um, it's music... all
1: it's all about forty to sixty year old music nerds, uh-huh. um, and then and then depending on the record, we dip into the twenties. I haven't looked at any of our charts in that way, but I get the messages from the fans. And they're all yeah. gray hair. They're all dudes. They all spend yeah. money. Good for yeah. them. Yeah. <laughs> they live in basements.
2: <laughs> good for your advertisers, really. <laughs> yeah, <right>. um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so um, I actually just dropped a rewatch podcast called My Mrs. Maisel Pod because the 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 demographic numbers on that show are all over the map and yeah, literally all uh, over the, the world map. Uh, it was just such a bizarre... Uh, lightning in a bottle um uh situation so anywho i uh, i do know the 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 way that shows or music touches people it's lasts a lifetime so i hadn't heard this album in forever uh and when i had this uh Zoom to look forward to. I, of course, listened to it a couple of times. And the first time through, it just completely brought me back. I'm in L.A., so I'm in the car and the music is going. And it's the perfect way to escape my uh, what's happening in the front windshield. So, yeah. And and talk about putting Pep in your step.
1: Yes. I mean, picture book. It's oh, I just
2: walked
0: so,
1: so much. So I've been listening to it on and off. And I, I just went up to the AMC. My dog is she has, she has a bad heart. So I took her to the cardiologist and we, she's fine, though. Uh, and we're walking. I, I was like, I wanted to listen to it. And I so I walked from 61st Street in New York all the way down to my apartment on 22nd and 1st and i mean there's all the there's the construction workers and people going to work and i'm almost bumping into everybody but with this playing it just puts you in such a good mood yeah you know, you can't deny that way different than some of the other stuff the record we did before this was what something uh, but basically a far different record and definitely a little more popular um yeah
2: yeah something, something else-, else
1: by the kinks you got it yeah
2: yeah i mean uh, there are there are moments in this that are very reflective uh do you remember walter it was v- a very similar sound to the early beatles actually um uh even f- to ringo's drum i mean uh yeah i mean listen um when when experimental things are happening in music or film or television or comedy people are interested in trying it in themselves and putting their own voice and imprint on whatever those new technical Uh, aspects are in in availability, whether it's podcasts or Zoom, you know, so how am I going to make the best of that? So I do feel like there's influences here as much as Ray Davies is one of a kind, unique uh, unicorn. um, I do feel even the harmonies at times. So whether the Beatles are inspired by them, vice versa, or, or, or the other groups out at the time, is anyone's argument or guess but it's fucking great whatever it, it is. is
1: great it's yeah. funny that you already brought up Miss Mazel because my, I think you mentioned why the success of it and I think there is always going to be a love of nostalgia in in uh, the projects that that seem to take off people like looking back and and you mentioned Miss Mazel, but this record this is basically the theme of this album it's basically ray davis writing music about his youth and the people that he's met you know throughout his life um i mean there's so many different characters in this record through each song there's johnny thunder yeah there's remember walter there's you know wicked Annabella, and these are all different characters in in the english english world yep uh, that he's come into contact with and and you know when you you talk about you know your history because uh, you started as a comedian you know but you're you started comedian and an impressionist um, you know you've become one of like the you know, in my opinion one of my favorite character actors working. And so my question to you is like when, you know, much like Ray with this record, when you're working on a, a character, are you using people from the past or are you just creating new forms?
2: Uh, both. And if you're insanely lottery winning, lucky enough to w- have the words of uh, of these show creators and writers, Amy sure. Sherman Palladino and Dan Palladino, you know, they are also unicorns. So... Uh, when you when you get those those words in the in the character and also their gift of freedom to the actors to all right now make these words yours. Don't fucking change a syllable, but when you read them and perform them, that's up to you. And um, so for me, it's all on the page or forget it. And then when it came to this loud and obnoxious uh, fella in Moish Mazel. I one hundred percent drew from a couple sources, and I talk about this in great, in great length. I talk about it on my Mrs. Maisel pod. However, you get your podcast, um, <laughs> one was uh, Lou Jacoby, uh, who I worked with on the Barry Levinson Jewey saga, Avalon. Um, he was of the Yiddish theater, but also big, big actor. Also famous for in the commercial for saying, um, uh, "Well, what was his big?" Oh, fuck. Now I'm forgetting it. But in, in Avalon, he he was the one. You cut the turkey, but on me, we leave. Oh, I can't believe I ate the whole thing. That was the commercial uh, <laughs> line. I think maybe Alkazos or something. I can't believe I ate the whole thing. So he had this very hilarious, uh, um, I don't know, other generation, other world. Uh, essence to him. And then there were my my grandfather and his brother who escaped the Cossacks uh, to come to America. And they would, as old men, would yell at each other from the far ends of the table, whatever holiday we were gathered for. Uh, and that that left a very deep, hilarious impression on me, the way that they yelled at each other. Yeah. Um Because there was love behind it, but man, did they seem angry.
1: Oh, welcome to any Jewish family, dude. There's more. My mom is like, why don't you have a call? I'm like, I'm on the phone with you now. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. What am I doing? What am I doing wrong? Yeah. Yeah.
3: That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void. were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, this is Chris Swinney, formerly of the Ataris and currently host of that one time on tour, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Have you ever wondered what it's really like on the road? The highs can be euphoric, but the lows can be crushing. Join me every week as I chat with industry pros about what it's like living out their wildest dream, and in some cases, their worst nightmare. Past guests of the show include members of NoFX, Pennywise, Bad Religion, and more. Listen
2: and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com. Yeah, so, so, so,
1: yeah, keep going, please. I'm so, sorry. so
2: I, yeah, I mean, listen, I was a stand-up comedian who had no formal training, so... You know, I auditioned for hundreds of things, and when I finally got something, I would just study the actual actors around me. I'm not proud of the fact that I had no formal training. It just happens to be the way it shook out. Um, and then it was A Few Good Men, you mentioned. That was the big one that sort of changed. I went from auditioning to getting offers. But in that process of doing that film, I'm you know, I'm Where's Waldo in that cast. Everybody's incredibly famous, and I got lucky. And um, so... I confessed to one of the greatest character actors of all time, certainly through the Mamet universe, J.T. Walsh, who plays uh, Lieutenant Markinson in a few games, yeah. Nicholson's sidekick, um, who does the right thing by uh, eating a bullet. But anywho, uh, I went to his trailer and confessed, hey, I think this is the movie I'm going to get found out on. I think this is, it was my eighth film. And I, I felt like this is the one where people are going to go, yeah, you do not belong. You don't know what you're doing. Uh, Yeah. I think we meant to contact Kevin Klein. I'll be honest with you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Different Kevin. And he, exactly. And he said, you're already doing a style. I mean, I confessed to him that I had no training. He said, you're already doing a style that actors train their their whole lives to to get comfortable with, which is less is more. Mm. And there's another part of that. Less is more. Nothing is best. If you can actually do nothing in a scene and draw attention, you win. So I certainly did that in A Few Good Men. And then it was so successful as were my opportunities that followed that I made, I basically made a career out of doing nothing is the truth. <laughs> um, just out of fear of not getting caught acting ever yeah. or getting caught, not knowing what I was doing, but really not ever wanting to look. And I also get bored by take three. Cause <laughs> then I start feeling like I'm acting and repeating yeah. And- and yeah, I can make it fresh, new, and different and weird, but it still starts to feel stale. Um, but when I did Casino with um, uh, De Niro and Scorsese, they, the two of them, love to do thirty plus takes. And wow, you know, I would have a scene with just me and De Niro, and I'm fucking bored to tears. Uh, I love watching him work, but in terms of my contribution, yeah, uh, just Shoot. no thank, no thank. I'm That's giving you what advantage. I got yeah that's like an advantage
3: because then you you don't
2: overdo it
3: ever if you're bored on take 25 then like you're not overdoing
0: it
2: i'm bored on take five so (laughs) all this leads to when it came to moish mazel it was time to release the hounds and be this bloviating over the top swinging for the fences never did this before Best reviews of my life, best most attention I've ever had in my career, a role you were born to play. From every fucking person I talked to, including my better half, she thinks so. You know, I realized I had wasted an entire career. I should have been screaming loud and very Jewy, starting thirty-five years
1: ago. There's something about the gray hair and the jewish screaming that really—that's what sells it, dude. I mean, Christ, you—you worked. You worked at Avalon. I mean, that's all. There's a lot of Jewy screaming. Maybe not from the main characters, but definitely you see in the yeah. background actors. <laughs> Barry was probably like, "Yeah, just you're arguing over over Bobka or something, and just go, and then yeah. they let him have it." Yeah. Um, exactly. No, I look. It, it's it's you know, looking back on on the, some of the projects that you've done, and then we're talking about this record being about the nostalgic world that that Ray grew up in. It's almost perfect that you're the guest today
2: um you know well I, I, i'll also say you know please. i did i if i may i directed this documentary technically still available on amazon called uh, misery loves comedy the premise being do you have to be miserable to be funny and i gathered 60 annoyingly famous funny people and interviewed them it's a talking heads documentary but okay but i really wanted to know you know in a, in a in an ocean of hey look at me disease, and Facebook certainly proved everyone suffers from it, Um, but those of us who choose it as a profession with a guaranteed 90% ratio of rejection, certainly coming up, um, who are these lunatics, these maniacs that put themselves uh, on the absolute most vulnerable stage of, hey, look at me, and then want everyone's attention, you know, Um, it's lunacy. So so to be that uh, entrenched with other artists who also suffered from this, and then the question coming up, do you have to be miserable to be funny? Well, the truth is, be it a comedian or a songwriter, or a painter or what have, playwright, you have to have suffered misery and then articulate it either beautifully, brilliantly, or hilariously no, we don't want to actually see you in pain on stage. Uh, what we'd like you to do is to either show up a mirror, pull up a mirror to our own pain or share your incredibly intimate pain that we can only go, oh, Jesus, you poor fucker. Yeah. So, you know, that is the the chi, the, the center of all art, in my humble opinion. And, you know, in terms of nostalgic, um, look, there's a moment in time, throughout history that if, if brought to the viewing eye or ear uh, uh, brilliantly, you know, the level of, of songwriting and performing and, and musicians in, in the kinks, to me, is more impressive than the any potential of nostalgic um, essence. And the same thing is true of Mrs. Maisel. Yes, no question. We're capturing 58 to 62. And and it was a different time in every way, shape, or form. However, if the department heads, as well as the writing and the cast, but the costume design, production design, all of it, every single aspect. If those, the cinematographer who beat out fucking Game of Thrones in their last season for the Emmy, if these people aren't absolute savants, then you can sing nostalgia all you want it's just not gonna no one's gonna give a shit yeah uh it's kind of the combination of all those things
1: no completely i mean two of my closest friends are writers on the show Jordy ploy and um and noah Gardenschwartz. i mean they're just <laughs> both people that i've you know i've done stand-up with for years and i loved their minds then and then why knowing that they work on the show i don't know exactly how much they contribute but just it, it, it's like knowing that those are the two writers that i'm friends with like oh they're in really good hands and and i think there's i think there's also something you know when you talk about stand up comedy you know a lot of people forget about the lenny bruce years and how important all of that was to formulating into what carlin was going to do and Pryor was going to do and you know i mean i mean christ uh, like on my arm I have tat- i have half of lenny bruce's face tattooed there because i was always fascinated by what my dad said and then you know you talk about pain you know Jews uh, we've been through some shit so we you know we what do we what else are we going to do to other than to uh, just be depressed we might as well make light of you know of of what the world and and bring joy to others you know through what we've been through i mean you know
2: mm-hmm. i, I yeah, feel like that's also, defi- there's a universal element no matter where what part of the world you came from because <clears throat> The difference between an Italian mother and a Jewish mother is um, almost non-existent. Yeah. And then if you drill down into the Greek mother and 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 continue on from there, you're going yeah. to find a universal theme. And so one of the things in the documentary was, um who's your who's your daddy and or mommy? and And the whole chapter was about, were your parents loving and supportive or did they say what the fuck do you think you're doing and and it's varied it's all up and down the scale um i was insanely lucky i was lip syncing an uh, an album in my own private world my mom brought home a comedy album and my i watched it played on this 7 foot wide stereo hi-fi piece of furniture um <laughs> <clears throat> and I watched my parents laugh uncontrollably in a way that I'd never seen them laugh before. And it was almost unnerving at first, like, Oh Jesus, are they having some sort of seizures? Yeah. Um, cause it's so involuntarily, right. That's that level of laughter. You, so when no one was around, I would put the album on and I would listen to it over and over and over again. And then I wanted to be the person telling the story ultimately, uh, uh, you know, psychology 101 would say, be the one to make my parents laugh. Yeah. Um, And then I would stand in front of the stereo and lip sync. Now, I I didn't think I had created lip sync. I didn't know anything about lip sync. I was just playing, pretending I was the one telling the story. And my mother, quote unquote, caught me. Uh, And the first thing out of her mouth, you're doing that at the Zuckers for Passover. Yes, of course, of course. And And a career was honestly born in that moment standing on the white painted out fireplace of the zuckers and and being a 10-year-old pitcher lip-syncing this famous comedian all i do is clear my throat the same time he did and and know the timing of the story and not having worked on the material at all or (laughs) spent years in the clubs perfecting it i just got to stand there and and mimic it uh without speaking so yeah that was that was an instant thing but again it was the support of the matriarch that of course of course you gonna tell
1: are you gonna tell us what the record is
2: well, I'm a little uh <laughs> holding back for maybe obvious reasons. If they just put in the liner notes of yeah, his album, I know would it would go on to become the most successful serial rapist in comedy. Oh history. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, okay. I that thought would have by- been that would have
1: <laughs> been helpful. <laughs> I know. I didn't think it was at the same time, but I thought you were talking. My dad used to have a, a Richard Pryor record that I can't say the title of oh, this anymore. Is oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But <laughs> it's so funny. Yeah, Where did they put you up on the in the in the, in the scene, or Did you go between the bitter herbs or before the afikomen
2: i i went uh i went after the whole service yeah oh yeah. there
1: you go so after a four-hour dissertation want that, you want that audience
2: <laughs> fed no we're california reform <laughs> jews which means we're practically catholic yeah uh, it was about a 45 minute seder and, and no one could wait to eat and that's all that mattered um <laughs> Yeah, sure. Oh, right. We're supposed to hide the cracker, weren't we? (laughs) That Um, kind of Jews. Yeah. Well, I I wonder if we do we have anything about the
1: Davies parents, like, because there's such a band that, you know, as a history, we had, we had Dave on the podcast uh, for the last record that we did. And he is just a fucking true gentleman. And I'm talking a positive light. Uh, especially knowing, like, and he, he mentioned about the rivalry between him and his brother, much like a lot of Rockstar brothers, the Oasis boys, even the Kings of Leon. I mean, I don't know if you know that. Sure, sure. They had, they had a
2: lot of issues to get those other records out. I mean, they had to, yeah, you know. Well, I, 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 I don't know if you saw the documentary, but they did come from hillbillies. For sure. But Jews, <laughs> hillbillies, you know, we're very similar. Well, that's what I was saying about it. it's It's the human uh, story, right? I don't know that it matters where you came from. You know, there's going to be variations on a theme. Yes, uh, it all get becomes Richard the Third or or Hamlet at some point.
1: I know, I couldn't have said that any better. Um,
3: so, okay, the three fight- brothers. Well, I mean, you're going to go through this. The youngest and only boys among their family's eight children. So you got
1: six you girls
3: go. and then two boys at the bottom.
1: And this episode. is growing up, um, I'm assuming, right after World War II, so Britain yeah. is is poor and just there's, there's still destruction that they're cleaning up from. Um, so the band takes form in 64 with uh, Peter Quaife, hopefully I said that right, on bass and Mick Avery on drums, and I'm not mistaken because I talked to our friend Morty, our old writer for the show, to go over this. This is Peter's last record. Uh, this is also cute. This, this secured them their first record deal. This is also when they changed the band name from the Ravens to the Kinks. Their first single was a cover of a little Richard song, long tail. Sally also recorded that year was the iconic. You really got me, um, which is actually funny. I, I I know this is a little off topic, but I'm going to get, I'm going to name drop, but uh, when I started getting into the 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 first record that we did before this, yeah. I I started listening to other King songs, and I love the song Lola so much. And I so send good. it to I send it. Well, dude, you're not gonna like what I'm about to say. Uh-huh. I send it to Mark Marin. Uh, who's also just the most curmudgeony curmudgeon in the world, and he'll shit on anything that I say because I want to be friends, and he keeps pushing me away. I'm finally cracking the seal a little bit. <laughs> Boy, but that I doesn't send sound
2: anything like Mark.
1: Not at all. And I send it to him and he goes, This song is terrible. He's like, if you're gonna listen to anything, you listen to Johnny Thunder, you listen to this. Lola is a crap song. I hate it. And look, when you really listen to the rest of this record and some of their other music, you realize that Lola is is a very poppy song. But I can't listen. I'm still into pop and and I don't give a shit. So, Mark, you can go fuck yourself. You heard it here. Literally, Literally, will get back to him. this past weekend.
3: There was karaoke with Lola and I saw the lyrics really for the first time. And I was like, this was super, I don't know, controversial. I don't know. I mean, it was silly. But it's, it's about like, trans. It's about a trans girl. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like it's so appropriate for today. Yeah, it is. Um,
2: well, yeah. I mean, you think about that moment in the sixties where um, pre-expression and the summer of love and so on and so forth, but that doesn't mean anyone was uh, writing about it or singing about it um, in terms of um, all the, all the varieties in of humans that were hanging out at the clubs and and wanting to have sex with each other you know we have a couple of strikes looming in show business one the writer strikes from going on for six or seven weeks already yep and i keep you know well i'll i'll talk to friends and writers and actors and stuff and say you know the solidarity of course but which one of us got into show business to be involved in a labor dispute. We all got into show business to get laid, man. I mean, that was absolute number 1 on the list. Yeah. <laughs> so, so to write about it, you know, with the full freedom in the 60s to write about it, right? There was no groups waiting to judge you and tell you and censor you and tell you what you couldn't couldn't say. Um, you know, you have to I think factor that in and I don't know that it's just poppy. I, I think it's also poetic. I think I'll tell you what, as a child when the fucking song came out, which Mark Marin wasn't, <clears> um, it's different when it comes out and slips into your your uh, radio first and then a friend's album in their home, and you're sitting down and listening um while trying to figure out what is what what is he talking about, first of all. I'm twelve. Yeah. I don't know what's happening. And then someone older saying, no, you li- need to listen to this again, not with, um, judgment or, or even, um, titillation, just there's something going on here in this song. So it may have become extraordinarily poppy in revisionist. Um, cause Mark's at least 10 years younger than me. Um, and, uh, way more educated in the world of music, as are you both. But I can just tell you just from the perspective of being uh, of a certain age when this song and these other songs came out and, yeah, and, and what it meant and what it meant to, driving around in my car the last couple of days listening to this particular Kinks album. It just took me back to a moment in time. uh <laughs> Oof i mean it's the nostalgic feeling is uh make make uh make that kind of art again without restraints and self editing
1: yeah would be wonderful yeah i mean well you you know it's funny that you mentioned uh you know we we keep going back to nostalgia and and you know knowing we're talking to you and your career you made one of my favorite movies and also a very important movie to to the jews of yesterday avalon which it was a classic and much like This record, which is critically acclaimed, of course, years later, but was a flop when it came out. And I'm not saying Avalon was a flop because it was nominated for awards. Yeah, but but no,
2: it made 20-something million at the box office. And in fact, the only way Barry Levinson got it made is that his film right before it was Rain Man. And he, in Mm -hmm. fact, went to the studios, and every studio in the world wanted to know what he wanted to do next, and he said this, and it was his third Baltimore set film, and he knew there would only be a moment in time when he, because it was expensive, it was big, it was lush, it was cinematic, Alan Davio, the cinematographer, you know, had done... Empire of the Sun, E.T., Color Purple, just a brilliant fucking guy. So every aspect, again, was going to cost a lot of money. And Barry knew, you know, Jews are going to see this, and not all of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, in fact, there was a funny, great story of him when he met with the studio that was ultimately greenlighting Avalon just to have Barry's next film. He, he said, you're, you're not going to be able to test this movie. We're not going to test it. You know, the test screenings for marketing. And the studio said, "Well, of course we are. That's what we do. You know, we. This is the process." And he said, "Yeah, but you're not testing this one." And they said, "You know what?" He said, "It's just too personal. It's too small. It's. It's not. It. uh, Here's why you're not going to test it." And he hands them a three by five card from a Rain Man test screening, where uh, on on which a audience member had written. As their response to seeing Rain Man in this test screening environment, they yeah. wrote, "I quote, Hey, why didn't the little guy just snap out of it?" <laughs> now, yes, my favorite part is, "Hey, comma, that's just that fucking brilliant." Yeah. But <laughs> why the qualifier? Um, not you're not confident in your question. You need to ease into it with the hey, comma hey. Why didn't the little guy just snap out of it? Uh, so Barry says this is why you're not testing this. this yeah. Oh my God. Insanely personal film. That, sure. That my family will see. So yeah, it was definitely not popular, and and never. Even even like the usual suspects, we, that no one was famous in the, in the cast. So in terms of marketing, it only released in 500 screens. So it only made 22 million in the States and it wasn't until DVDs and all of that. Now around the world in Europe, a hundred million. Um, I remember meeting with a French director many, many years later, Bruce Willis had tried to shove me down this guy's throat or so I thought. And so I said, well, let me meet with the director to make sure he wants to hire me, this film hostage. Um, Bruce and I had already done a couple films I knew he liked to throw me upon the director and say hire this guy <laughs> so I met with this French director and he said I said you know I just I feel I want to make sure this this is, this is a good fit for you you know this is your film he said Kevin you don't understand uh, uh, when I was young uh, in Paris the few, uh, usual suspects opened and, and he named the theater and it played there for 92 weeks Wow. So okay, so it played in the same theater for almost two years. <laughs> got it um, so you know when you' you're, when you're a part of that uh, moment in time, and in this case Barry Levinson's career uh, allowed him to make Avalon. yeah and and it, it didn't matter that no one no one being the masses uh, cared. this piece of art went out there into the world that was so personal that that's the love letter, right
1: No, oh, totally. <laughs>
2: you do the same so if that sounds cool you can listen and subscribe at soundtalentmedia.com and i'll see you there one hit thunder
3: is a podcast where we both celebrate and have a good laugh about bands and artists that had just one hit that we all know each week we're joined by a guest from the world of music or comedy to learn
2: more than you ever thought you would about some songs that you can't forget and we decide if they brought the one hit thunder or nothing more than a One Hit Blunder. Look, if you listen to the show, you're probably going to laugh,
3: and I guarantee you're going to crush next time the bar has music trivia. Tag Team, Jane Child, Meredith Brooks, Looking Glass, Sean Mullins, Eiffel 65, EMF, Crash Test Dummies, Crazy Town, Chumbawamba. We have hundreds of episodes in our back catalog and a new episode each week. So pass the dutchie. make sure you're connected, and subscribe to One Hit Thunder wherever you get your pods.
1: I, cool. I love I love I have all these questions I'm trying to I've been trying to figure out the correlation between this record and figuring out ways to ask you questions about the movies that I fucking love that you've done. So you mentioned you mentioned uh, Usual Suspects. Obviously, I want to talk about that. But here's my connection is that the kinks are when you're talking about the British invasion, yep. which the kinks and Jared, did you pull that up for me? So the kinks could not get into America. They got banned right at the height of when they were about to break in the States and it, and it just put the kibosh on being able to take it to that level of like the stones or, or Sergeant Pepper with the Beatles or or whatever, just, it, it just, it held them back. Why were they, why were they banned again, Jer?
3: So following the tour of the U.S. in the 65, the American <clears throat> excuse me, Federation of Musicians refused permits to the group to appear in concerts there for the next four years, effectively cutting the kinks off from the main market for rock music at the height of the British invasion. Although neither the kinks nor the union revealed the specific reason, at the time it was widely attributed to their rowdy onstage behavior. There was an incident when the band were taping Dick Clark's TV show, Where the Action Is. In 65, that led to the band. Ray Davies recalled in his autobiography, some guy who said he worked for the TV company walked up and accused of accused us of being late. Then he started making anti-British comments, things like just because the Beatles did it, every mop top, spotty face, glimey juvenile thing. I thought it I thought it was gonna be
1: like, Your food's terrible.
3: <laughs> like- <laughs> well, that would be true. Uh <laughs> And He said, you come over here and make a career for himself. <laughs> Subsequently, a punch was thrown. So it doesn't say which Davies or who threw the punch. And the Ray. AFM, it's band. Ray. It's definitely not Dave. Dave's a Dave's a pacifist dude. He's he's adorable, right? Yeah. So. It says it goes back and forth, five or four year bands. So, so, so but,
1: they, so they lose but. out on being able to come to the States. Well, first question, and then I'll get into the one where I'm going to throw this to usual suspects is, is, do you think if the, if the kinks don't get banned with your knowledge and what you know about, you know, some of these bands, do you think that the kinks would be in that discussion much of higher? You,
2: yeah, I do too. Of or like, Of course, there's no question about it. Yeah. No, they, they had already made an impact. I mean, you don't, in '65, you said, you know, as you mentioned, getting that TV appearance—that that doesn't happen without reason—and um, the album that they were, you know, touting or touring or whatever, um, was insanely impactful, regardless of what was happening with their visas. Those of us who were listening to the music at the time weren't aware; we were just hearing, you know, albums that they they may not have shot up the charts and reached numbers that the label wanted, but to those of us who were 11, 12, 13, 14 and trying to find out what, what the next music was, those albums find found their way into our lives. Sure. In sure. A big, big, big impactful way. And I can tell you that within the same breath, you would say the Beatles, Dave Clark five and the Kings for sure.
3: Uh, completely. Especially, Especially for- where you grew up in San Francisco. I'm sure it reached you. Um, but this oh. is so usual suspects, isn't it? Because it's a cult album. It didn't reach these chart.
1: Top no, it didn't. But numbers. but this is where I wanted to find. This is where I was finding the connection is that when you're talking about the usual suspects and you're talking about that era of film in the '90s, where where it seemed like the major studios were finding these more independent sub sub. Uh, you know like like miramax was starting to grow and and fox searchlight i'm pretty sure and they were basically giving people like some these auteurs some money to make movies where you have pulp fiction and reservoir dogs and and then you have usual suspects which is this little movie like you said it it wasn't a huge release but it's when you talk about those movies from the 90s you have to put usual suspects in there i mean i mean christ like chris went on to win the oscar for it but it's also like, I think probably one of the biggest turns in a movie up there with the six Sense. Um, totally. and so, and so where the Kinks were able to hold their own where Rolling Stones are doing, um, I might fuck the album title up, your majesty's satanic service, which is kind of like their Sergeant Pepper and the Beatles are doing Sergeant Pepper. And now you have the Kinks doing the village green, you know, I wanted to find out when you're working on The Usual Suspects with those, that caliber of actors where some of those dudes in those scenes are basically chewing on the scenery, Benicio Del Toro and and uh, Baldwin. And I mean, how did you find a way to hold your own where you're just as good as any of those dudes in that movie. So what, what was it like do working well, on that and being able to work with those level of actors?
2: Yeah. I'm still in the throes of less is more. So that's all I'm doing. And yeah. also the idea of me, the comedian in my mind playing a sociopath criminal is laughable. So I'm really <laughs> underplaying to not get caught and have anyone say who let this fucking guy in here. Yeah. Um, And yeah, so uh, in terms of Benicio del Toro, uh, completely unknown, he had been in the Peter Weir film about the plane crash with Jeff Bridges, and uh, very small part, very very small. But people started to go, hmm. But in in our case, when he came to set, nobody knew who he was, and and uh, and and when I met with Brian Singer about doing the film. He said well there's two parts left which one do you want and it was the one i chose the one i played and the one benicio played and i said well i don't want that one i don't want fenster because there's no reason for that character to be in the movie other than spoiler alert to die to as a warning to the other suspect you can't run from kaiser soze that's the whole purpose of that character he doesn't say anything impactful He doesn't do anything impactful he's mcmanus's sidekick he's he's barely there yeah i don't want that one and then benicio comes in and instantly steals every scene he's in and is the most (laughs) arguably the most memorable uh, character in the film sure but but they uh, they decided not to tell we the suspects uh what benicio was going to do to try to get a real performance in the very first scene we all did together which was in the lockup uh after the poster one sheet police lineup uh image And scene, we're in a lockup together, and it's where we ultimately decided to do a heist. But while we're just there, the first time Benicio speaks, his character, my character says, what the fuck did he just say? And yeah. it wasn't me improvising, which I did a lot of, to the point where I asked Chris McQuarrie to drop his Oscar at one week out of fifty-two every <laughs> in
0: my house because every film, every line that you would
2: quote back to me from that movie is one that I improvised. I but love it. Love it's still the best it. script I've ever read. So, um, so I say, what the fuck did he just say? Not only was it not scripted, not only was it not improvised, it was me, the actor, breaking the scene and saying to the other actors and the director, "What the fuck did he just say?" Yeah, as a way to say what do what are, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and Brian left it in the film; it's in the movie. My character says, "What the fuck did he do?" I say? love it. Um, but yeah, stole every scene by far. I mean, look, the film is is, is an absolutely perfect example of lightning in a bomb. Completely, and yeah. I tell people that, and then I say, if you need further proof, you needn't look any further than the fact that Stephen Baldwin is. Great right in the film because <laughs> he is
0: he is, is.
1: yes yeah. you can't think so you knew it a second you saw that script that was handed to you you probably read it in one sitting and we're just like fuck well, yeah I, I need to be in this
2: well that was 94 we shot it so after 92 i finally had offers and so you know the agent and i would get on the phone and we would go through. He would tell me what the offers were and tell me wh- about them. You know, and you're always interested. Who's directing? Who's who else is acting? And who wrote it? Yeah. What are the elements? And he then he would kept saying, "There's this other script that you really have to read called The Usual Suspects." I said, "Well, who who's directing it? Someone you've never heard of. He's 25. Great. What else is on the list? What else is on the stack? No, no, you got to read this. Okay. Well, who wrote it? Another guy, 25. You never heard of. Terrific." <laughs> what else is on the step you have to read this script usual suspect who's in it uh stephen ball (laughs) well no at that point at that point it was just spacey and gabriel Byrne, and spacey was a character actor like me but he hadn't even done anything to the anywhere near the level of a few good men so he was much down the food chain than even i was just a character actor who was starting to work a lot Um, And Gabriel had done Miller's Crossing, which if you were a fan of the Coen brothers, you loved. It's a great film. But but it made no money. So he wasn't even a movie star in any way, shape, or form. So I just kept saying to my agent, yeah, yeah, what else is on the stack? I'll get to it. I'll get to it. He just kept hammering me over weeks and weeks. And finally, I said, okay, you know what? I can't have this discussion anymore, so I'm going to read it tonight. And I got to page five, and I called him and said, tell the director I'm in. Yeah, Hell yeah. Uh, Page five.
1: That's insane.
2: That's yeah, before I the turn. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> I know if you're goddamn right. I, well, it's, you know, there's there's like, you, you, was it the, just the, the pacing or was it just what you were envisioning or was it just word for word
3: well, perfect?
2: Well, yeah, I mean, well, here's another perfect example of my alleged uh, improv that not only made everything better, but you bring the Oscar to my house one week out of the year. Uh, and <laughs> in the, in the, Stanley in the, Cup in the montage, exactly the montage <laughs> of us each getting individually arrested and gathered up. My character's in a garage, he's working on a car, and the garage door behind him opens, five officers rush in, he adjusts the side mirror to look at them, and help the camera angle see them through the side mirror, and then I wipe my face with a hand towel, and I throw it at the side view mirror to cover up the lens, so that we can transition into the next uh, piece of the montage, and then when we shot it, and the guys rush in, I said, because they took the fucking trouble of miking me even though there was no lines written. Yeah. I said, are you sure you brought enough guys? And that's (laughs) in the movie. Yeah. 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 Uh, Just another, just another example. Um, But, but (laughs) yeah, so it was a, a scene like that, a montage like that that takes place in the first handful of pages. And maybe it wasn't five. Five is a good number for the story. It might've been 11. I just remember it was a very short number of pages before I stopped and called.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And And also
2: you can just tell as a, as a, as a writer, you could just tell there is a style. There is a pace. There is a same thing with Mrs. Maisel. You know, you just, you just, just read. And it's almost like nobody really talks like this. Ooh, this should be good. You know, it's uh, it's grounded in a sense of of real people, but ev- everything is heightened and everything is moving at a pace you're not accustomed to. And it's just compelling. You can't wait to get to the next
1: page. Oh, I bet. And that's I bet. The no completely and being that we we're we're still still keep it in nostalgia but being that we're getting close to the ending and I and I will get to your favorite songs and all the other crap we do every episode but I this is this episode's for me everybody you're Uh, in one of the I when we talk about nostalgia we talk about what, what Ray and Dave were writing about this record you are in probably one of the most nostalgic nostalgically casted films of all time with the grumpy old men franchise and uh-huh. you know you you were you play walter Matthau's son in it um I, I gotta know because you're i mean legends legends of the entertainment industry and yeah. you you just you get to be a part
2: of that um what is studying you, yeah you're studying at the feet of mount rushmore 100 I mean, percent. there's no other way and also ann margaret and then in the sequel sophia loren hadn't been in a movie in 20 years so yeah she shows up 65 the most stunning woman that ever lived
1: oh my god still um, yeah
2: and and burgess meredith you know i mean all, all of it i get to chase daryl hannah around um you know it, the, every <laughs> aspect job. of it but mark but but lemon and mathau were clearly at the center of the fantasy come true also they shared an apartment in at the top presidential suite or whatever of this hotel they so the odd couple lived together while we shot
1: No, shit. So great.
2: (laughs) Because there was only one world-class masterful suite in the entire Minneapolis-St. Paul area. And so their front people found this place and they were kind of going back and forth about which actor was going to get it. And Walter and and Jack got wind of this and found out that there was another master bedroom at the other end of it. And so they said, well, we'll both live there. Let's do that. And there was a piano in the middle and a kitchen. Sure. So they would have us over and you'd walk in and Jack Lemmon would be playing the piano and you would just die. You would just say, all right, well, you can take me now because this is it.
1: What did you learn? What, what was like, you know, what was your favorite story? Cause I mean, you must have seen so much being on set or heard them talk. And I mean, in that situation, it's like, when you get around those comics that you look up to, you just, you just let them talk and, and ask well, where you
2: can. Yeah. I mean, Jack Lemmon became very well known by everyone who worked with him to say to himself for no one's uh, uh, entertainment right before. I mean, the process is while you're getting ready to shoot the moment in the movie or a television show, the actual technical process folks might know is the actors are on their spots. They're ready to go. There's been touch ups. They're fine. They're good. Uh, Everyone's signed off, cinematographer, everybody's happy. And then the next steps are the sound. The first AD or second AD, usually the first will yell, roll sound. And now we're waiting for sound to say speed, which indicates sound is good. We're ready to go. And in that nanosecond before the next step that happens of the director saying action, Jack would say to himself, magic time. (laughs) And uh, it was so small and it was so personal. It was just all his, but it became Mm -hmm. sort of legendary. I would think among people who worked with him. Uh, Did he say magic time before every day? Yeah. Um, And, you know, so you hear something like that and you go, well, that's cool. Yeah. Good for him. But it was way more than that. It was a guy uh, who had had one of the most extraordinary careers, being allowed to do the silliest comedy and the most intense drama all in the same career, which just doesn't ever happen. Doesn't happen now. Him and Mathau both represented character actors who got to be movie stars. Um, Neither one classically handsome in any way, shape, or form. Mathau was born with the face of a basset hound. So (laughs) 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 where's he going? Uh, But so after this historical Mount Rushmore career, Lemon is saying to himself, in the three seconds he has before this is it and action. Remember why we're doing this. Why you're here. here. Uh, It doesn't matter which take this is because he did it every take. Um, So that was a phenomenal lesson. And then the lesson for Mathow was uh, to always have fun. There's no point in doing any of this unless you're having fun.
1: hundred percent that yeah. my therapist, uh, you know, was more of a spiritual guide, but I call my therapist just so I, so I don't get people laughing at me for my new age healing that I do. But before all my, my, my comedy central special taping, I, I was extremely nervous. It was like the jokes just weren't hitting in the weeks leading up to it. Cause I was too in my head. And he said to me that day when, so we had a session and he was like, you know, don't forget, man, what, what's your intention to do that? And I so I just want to have fun. And he goes, be right before you go up, take a second, set your intention and go have fun. Cause that's what you're doing it for. It's not for them. It's not to get the adulation and the laughter. I mean, of course that's our job, but just that's what you're trying to get out of it. I want my, I can only control my experience. So I might as well. And it's like what yeah. we do as comics is fun as actors. It's fun. We get to play pretend we get to make people laugh. And when you think about all the other shit, you know, it can make, it just takes away from it. So it's like, if you whittle it down to just, Man, I'm grateful I get to do this. This could be my last show. You have no idea, you know so so go up and enjoy it and it's I love mag- that, that Walter it, said that it's
2: magic time. To...
1: What was your favorite story from from working with
2: those two guys? Um, they had us over for to watch the academy awards uh the main cast, and we sat and watched and it was the year that Marissa Tomei won um my cousin Con- Vinny, yeah. Controversially from four British actresses in the same category. <laughs> um, and you know, I we're 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 a gathering of artists. So we were while they were listing off the nominations, oh, I work with Joan Plywright in Avalon, and I worked with everyone saying who they love. And no one's talking about Marissa Tomei. As wonderful as she is, yeah. in my cousin Vinny and has Hysterical as she is of my cousin, Benny. We're talking about the Academy Awards and it's not going to go to the comedic performance. It's just sure. isn't. Yeah. So when they announce and the winner is Marissa Tomei, maybe there's 11 of us. There's a, a cacophony, an instant outcry of idiots. Uh, what the, how did, you know, yeah. and Matt Bao is just sitting in his chair. He hasn't moved. His facial expression hasn't changed. He's waiting for the idiots around him to shut the fuck up, which takes <laughs> at least nine minutes. <laughs> he hasn't moved. He's three feet in front of the TV and in, in the armchair with the sad sack Basset Hound face. He's yeah. finally the cacophony grows to a silence. And he finally says, I'll sell my Oscar for 35 cents. <laughs> <laughs> that was his protest uh, that was his idea of a protest cut everybody down into size right <laughs> i love that yeah.
1: now it, that, that's that's so great you know I, I with the movies that you've been in i mean are some of my favorite movies i remember watching that getting the, the initial reaction of, uh, of the usual suspects with my dad, my dad almost shit himself. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I saw casino in the theater. Uh, you know, it was one of, still one of my favorite movies, one of my favorite airplane movies to watch. Cause if I'm going across country, it's about almost three hours. So I know if I put it on, if I wake up at a certain part, I'm like, all right, I'm an hour and a half in, and then I go back to bed. <laughs> yeah. I have an idea. But it's just, it's, it's great, man. And that's why I love doing this podcast because, you know, eventually I would have run into you in some facet here in Hollywood. And, but it just to be able to sit down and talk with you for the last hour about this record and everybody, we're still going to do the usual ending. We always do, but some episodes are for me. Kings rule. We're not taking anything away from the Kings, but I want to find out about usual suspects. Um, So Kevin, thank you for coming on. First and foremost, you, you rule dude. All right. What is your favorite song on this record?
2: Do you remember Walter? I do. Yeah, I, it's, it has a a very, um, like I was saying earlier, a, a very, um, in some ways unusual sound and in other ways, uh, influenced and inspired as, as was the moment at, that the Beatles and, and others were, as you say, doing their Sergeant Peppers and, and um, so, yeah, it has it has all of that, and it just was became uh, the epicenter of the album for me in terms of going back to being eleven years old and hearing this album for the first time.
1: Do you think that this this album deserves to be in that discussion when you're talking about Sergeant Pepper? We're talking about Your Majesty's I mean, it Satanic depends services.
2: On, it depends on how highfalutin and self important the person is you're talking to. You know in terms of the of a conversation yeah you know if yeah yes yes
0: i do. I, I do
1: too i do too it's you know whereas like i was talking to, to my friend about this album and you know where he said where i think the beatles made a little bit different whereas this record is different is that this is one fully formed like every song has a very similar flavor to the last song but different, but still like within this, these borders of, of the writing process, whereas something like Sergeant Pepper would do something like she's leaving home and then they'd switch to this. So it's not so it's more of a fully balanced record of different styles that the Beatles were kind of doing, whereas this is just one solid piece. In my opinion, after he said that, I was like, it feels like that, but that doesn't mean that this solid piece isn't perfect.
2: Yeah, yeah, I, I, I don't actually think of this album in terms of how it compares to other artists. True. Yeah. I, I, you know, the great filmmakers, for example, Tarantino, his movies are compared to his other movies. Scorsese movies are compared to other Scorsese movies. Yeah. They're not compared to the Beatles. So I don't. I, I'm not a big fan of that in terms of. No especially speaking in terms of what belongs in a pantheon I I'm not going to I'm I don't I don't uh, come to that decision by well how does it play against this other argument sure. of historical level Sure it's it's uh not I don't think it's the criteria that works for me No so, I like that Yeah
1: yeah no, I, I listen. I, I after you know, especially after talking to dave and and hearing about like them being they're not being able to tour the biggest market in the world. Yeah. I mean, that's that's like you know you're you're cutting somebody's foot off. It's like you can't you can't do anything. and and I mean the fact that they have three records on this list, you know, not there's there's some bands that that are ten times bigger sales and awards, and they have one album on here. I mean, you you talk about the history of the kinks. it's it's there are there are some speed bumps but if those were removed you know what they would be capable of
2: doing and that may be behind maren's comment about lola not being the one to listen to um i agree i i i cut my uh subversive sarcastic uh comedy teeth on the early writings of samuel clemens whose poppy work is known under the writing name of mark twain but his early writings as sam clemens are fucking you know diary of adam and eve just some some stuff that's just otherworldly so yeah do i think tom sawyer's an interesting read sure (laughs) does it compare to uh, captain stormfield's visit to heaven no um so it may be that thing of like we were saying those first couple albums from certain artists uh, when they're finding their voice is ultimately what I'm going to judge the rest of their work on, not on. Yeah. Other.
1: No. no, I love that. I love that. All right. Uh, Lee's favorite song on this record. Do you have one? What, what do you skip over? I think that's more of a, uh, you know, I only
2: listened to it twice. I didn't really feel the the impulse to skip over anything as it was playing. Okay. So I, I might that. have to take myself out of the running because I, I don't feel like I have a real
1: opinion. I get it. I get it. All right. Then the third question, can you fuck to this record? <laughs>
2: uh, I ask everybody.
1: I ask uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson.
2: Hey, I, I don't have a problem with the premise of the question. Thank you. Um, Unfortunately for you and your listeners, I don't play music when I'm fucking.
1: No. Okay. All right. Really? Just the sounds of love. Good for you. I like to be present. (laughs) I get it. And if there's
2: there's this level of quality of (laughs) entertainment (laughs) happening at the same time, guess what? I'm not present.
1: Yeah, I get it. I get it. I get (laughs) it. Um, Could you work out to this record? And if so, what would be the style of fitness?
2: Uh, I'm a walker. So the answer is yes, of course.
1: Yeah, totally. Yeah. All right, and what would be your elevator pitch to get someone to listen to this album?
2: Uh, kind of boil down essence of what we've been talking about for now, which is this is a band that became famous, but they're really not uh, universally known for this level of, of quality in music because they weren't really given an opportunity to hit the U.S. market the way totally they, sh- they should have so this is a perfect example of why this band uh is shouldn't just be known to you by name but belongs in a higher pantheon of british invasion rock
1: couldn't couldn't agree more and and after listening to this record and he, what you you mentioned earlier about excuse me mark's comment about lola he's right it's like it's definitely not their best song lola's not their best song they have a library of music that with each and every listen, it, it not only gets better, but you you realize just how important this band was to the shit that we're listening to now, you know, yeah. and needs to be in the same discussion as some of those other great bands.
2: Yeah, of course.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Promote away, buddy. What do you got to promote? You mentioned, uh, you mentioned the documentary available on Amazon.
2: Yeah. And, but the, go ahead. <laughs> the big new one is um, My Marvelous Mrs. Uh, Not marvelous. My Mrs. Maisel pod. Um, My Mrs. Maisel pod is a rewatch podcast of the multi award winning broke through the zeitgeist of over 700 scripted shows and became a worldwide phenomenon known as the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. All right. 20 Emmys in three seasons. Listen, it's not a competition, but if it were that show kind of won, but for the fans all over the world who like the series I have a guest on each episode from either in front of the camera or behind Luke Kirby, who brilliantly portrayed Lenny Bruce on the series is my first guest of uh, the podcast, my Mrs. Maisel pod. However you get your podcast, you will find my Mrs. Mazel pod now available.
1: Check it out, everybody. Uh, thank you so much, Kevin, for coming on, buddy.
2: Yeah, my pleasure. This of course. Great. Yeah, man. And uh, continued success by all means. And we will see each other in the playground at some point
1: yes yes totally what i tell you the one and only kevin Pollock. find him on instagram at kevin Pollock 123 or on twitter at kevin Pollock. and listen to my miss mazel pod which launched earlier this month all right for new music we've got the empty hearts and you're listening to their song coat taylor from their 2020 record the second album You can find links to their music on our website, the500podcast.com. And if you're in a band and you want your song played, send your song to 500 podcast at gmail.com, and we will play it. Next week, it's Whitney Houston, and it's a fucking doozy. It's her self-titled record. All the hits are on there. It is phenomenal. So 1985's Whitney Houston. Let's do this. Do your homework. Thanks, guys.